And right here, we have Mr. Mark Finod, one of our most common guests, and we really thank him for all of his support that he has shown to us until now. He is, Mr. Finod is a former French diplomat. He's currently training new diplomats and officers in Geneva, and he's specialized in arms disarmament. So let's get going. Our today's topic is transforming nuclear deterrence and interrelation politics and decoding the UN commitments. So, Mr. Finod, our first question regarding the role of United Nations in nuclear deterrence. How can the United Nations cooperate and transform the realities of nuclear deterrence that have transformed in this century with those developed and developing countries that have not yet ratified or even shown any intent to sign the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons? Yes, that's a very important question. Um, maybe just a, a few points to, uh, to go back to history or to go back to basics. Well, the UN, you could say, was born on the ashes of Hiroshima. You know, at the end of the Second World War, uh, with this uh, new era that was entered into by the uh, explosion of uh, nuclear weapons, atomic weapons. That created a, a new situation. And at that time, of course, there was only one nuclear power, the United States. And um, there was a sort of consensus that this weapon, including by those who invented it, uh, you know, scientists who took part in the Manhattan Project, uh, wrote several, several letters, uh, warning about the risk of this new weapon. And therefore there was a very early consensus, actually the first resolution of the United Nations was to create a commission to abolish all weapons of mass destruction, starting with nuclear weapons. So you could say that nuclear disarmament is also in the DNA of the United Nations. Now, of course, as we know, uh, a few years later, the Cold War started, and then there's this competition, the proliferation of nuclear weapons. And if we look at the arguments of the nuclear powers now, you know, actually calling nuclear proliferation the main threat. Again, if we go back to history, we realize that this phenomenon of proliferation of nuclear weapons was largely due to those who possess the weapons. By definition, uh, if you possess the weapon, you can share it. If you, if you don't have it, well, you have to get it somewhere. And uh, historically, if you look at the chart of nuclear buildup, uh, nuclear weapons buildup, those states that eventually developed nuclear weapons, they all receive some form of assistance from others. Actually, the United States scientists, not the government, of course, but scientists thought that it would be better if the United States didn't have a monopoly of nuclear weapons. So they assisted Soviet scientists to have the Soviet Union gain its own nuclear weapon. Then Soviet Union uh, helped China, China held Pakistan, France, is, France helped Israel, uh, and 
you know, this was a, a wide, widespread phenomenon. In the 1960s, actually, President Kennedy thought that uh, sooner or later there would be up to 25, 30 states possessing nuclear weapons. Of course, that would have been a nightmare in terms of you know, balance of forces, uh, um, strategic stability. And, and therefore, the second consensus or large broad agreement was to you know, put an end to this phenomenon of proliferation. So that's why we have the non-proliferation treaty uh, adopted at the end of the 60s. And of course, this is, it also opened a new era in the sense that those states that agreed not to acquire nuclear weapons, the non-nuclear weapon states, of course, they made a sort of sacrifice in the sense uh, to uh, to give up this option of pr protecting their own security, but they they did this, of course, in exchange for something else, and this something else was precisely the commitment, the legal obligation, by all the, the states that possessed nuclear weapons and that eventually or uh, initially joined the treaty to get rid of these weapons, uh, to, to fulfill a pledge of complete uh, general and complete disarmament, which means, and of course, there is a lot of interpretation and, and controversy about the, the, the actual meaning or what the intention behind this uh, our famous Article 6 in the uh, Non-Proliferation Treaty. Uh, in a sense, the, now the nuclear weapon states claim that this process is still not over, that, that there are still, of course, states that want nuclear weapons, but there are also chemical weapons around or biological weapons and conventional weapons. So therefore, um, uh, still a reason to maintain nuclear deterrence against these threats. And, and of course, now you can certainly dispute this argument because there's been a lot of progress in the other areas, in the other categories of weapons, prohibition of biological weapons, prohibition of chemical weapons, some degree of constraints on the arms trade or proliferation of small arms and light weapons. In, of course, in regional context, there've been also nuclear weapon-free zones in Latin America, in Africa, in Southeast Asia, South Pacific, Central Asia. And uh, in Europe, of course, there was, um, at the end of the Cold War, there's a major uh, disarmament, conventional disarmament that took place, you know, with hundreds of thousands of heavy weapons that were just eliminated, destroyed. So now we are in, the, in this new situation where because 50 years later, progress in nuclear disarmament or on general and complete disarmament was not what was uh, promised, the majority of the non-nuclear weapon states decided they've, you know, they've had enough. It was time to do something else. And that actually, they took advantage of a, an initiative from civil society which is again a, a new feature of the post-Cold War period because negotiations sometimes broke down or were stalled among governments. 
civil society organizations took over and they campaigned and they convinced government to, to start adopting uh, treaties. And this was done for anti-personal landmines, uh, cluster munitions, the arms trade. And therefore there was on this, following the same trend and using the same arguments, you know, we prohibited biological, chemical, uh, weapons, landmines, cluster missions. Why? Because they could not be used in uh, compliance with international humanitarian law. As you know, um, there are two categories of law applicable in conflict or, or about conflict. There's law before the conflict, use ad bellum, and that's basically the UN Charter, Article 2, that prohibits the use of force, with exception of legitimate self-defense, and that's an argument that nuclear powers still use. But once a conflict, an armed conflict has started, whether it's an international armed conflict or non-international conflict, civil war, domestic conflict, you have to apply a number of rules. And, and the principles are basically to protect civilians, to protect non-combatants, and to apply proportionality, um, a principle of humanity, avoiding uh, unnecessary suffering. All these principles would be violated in case nuclear weapons would be used. And this is the main argument, the humanitarian consequences of uh, any use of nuclear weapons that was uh, behind this campaign uh, to come to the same conclusion as with the previous agreements, previous treaties, if you cannot regulate, you eliminate. So this you know, was applied to nuclear weapons. Obviously, there's no way you can use nuclear weapons without sparing civilians. Now we know that the concept of nuclear deterrence is based on just the fear of use, not or the threat of use, not the actual use. That's again the main argument of proponents of nuclear deterrence. But we know now that the risk of use or any form of nuclear explosion is much higher now than during the Cold War. If you want, I can come back to, to this and explain why this is the case. We'll have a question regarding the New START agreement, which is, as we can see, it's on its way to expire before it comes into force. So we'll continue with our other questions and we'll address this problem later on. So Mr. Finod, we have mentioned the UN, we have mentioned that actually the states who already had the nuclear bomb were mostly the ones responsible for it becoming more common. So let's turn back to the United Nations and other organizations. What are the failures of the UN in dealing with the Cold War mentality of nuclear weapons, the dismemberment and dissemination, especially in the context of the nuclear arms race that has taken place in the Middle East and the Eastern region, the old British Raj, especially India and Pakistan? Because we all know that the Indian-Pakistani conflict is always an ongoing reality. Yes. Uh, first of all, I think when we talk about the UN, you know, it's it's, it's a very abstract notion. The UN is 
composed of member states. And of course, it has its own organs, the General Assembly, which is the most democratic representation of all the, the member states, uh, one, one state, one vote. Then you have the Security Council. But the Security Council, of course, has extraordinary powers. It can have, it can impose legally binding measures on states, such as sanctions. Uh, but it also has permanent permanent members that are, if you say, if you like, more equal than others because they have the, they enjoy the right of veto. Now, sometimes you hear uh, a sort of uh, equation between the five permanent members and the five nuclear weapon states, which are party to the non-proliferation treaty. This is, I would say, a historical coincidence. It's, it's not an accident, but you cannot equate, I would say, P5 with N5. First, because when the UN was established, uh, was created in, in 1945, there was only one nuclear power, the United States. The other permanent members, such as the Soviet Union then and Russia, France, UK, and China, uh, it didn't have nuclear weapons, but they still had a veto power as permanent members. So now, again, uh, and especially also at that time, China was represented at the Security Council at the UN by re the Republic of China, not uh, People's Republic of China. This changed uh, back in 1971. Now, of course, uh, that that coincidence gives special powers and special rights or privileges to the five nuclear powers that are party to the NPT. And these, these powers, of course, they have used and abused because within the NPT, actually the obligations on the non-nuclear non powers are much stringent and they are time-bound and they're verifiable, while the obligations on the nuclear weapon states are very vague, very open-ended, and, and they're not verified. So this is this inequality of status or discrimination that actually led to some countries like India to remain outside the non-proliferation treaty. And that created actually a new situation because you have a very important country, India, that has developed uh, nuclear weapons that, that had a capacity in 1974 when it exploded its first so-called peaceful nuclear device. And then in 1998, when it tested its nucle actual nuclear weapons, that again created a new uh, a new situation because you had a country that was frustrated of not having been recognized as a nuclear power that was not member of the security council and wanted to to be recognized on, on the world scene and had uh, with influence and it the only solution it found was precisely to acquire nuclear weapons so 
whatever you, you, you think of this situation, whether we like it or not, it's, it's reality. And, and that, again, created a new challenge for the international community, because of course it was, uh, India was followed by Pakistan, then uh, North Korea, and we knew that Israel also had developed nuclear weapons not being party to the non-proliferation treaty. So if you look at the whole balance sheet of the NPT over the all over this period, you know, for, since 1970 when it entered into force, on its on its two main objectives, non-proliferation and disarmament, it's not a major success because in terms of proliferation, it didn't stop the number of nuclear armed states to be multiplied by two from five to 10, uh, including South Africa that then disarmed unilaterally. And now that's why we now we have nine nuclear armed states. And as we've seen in terms of disarmament for 15 years until 1985, the number, the arsenals of nuclear weapon states continue to grow, not a, a you know, not a disarmament trend. And they started to decrease, you know, when they had reached this peak uh, during the Cold War. And now if you compare the number then, uh, or rather the number uh, at the entrance into force of the NPT, 1970, with the current numbers, the current arsenals, which is above 13,000 nuclear weapons, you could say that it's a, it's a decrease, a reduction by half. So multiply the number of nuclear weapon states and only reduce the number of nuclear weapons by half. Again, not a major success. So that's where we are. And that explains, as I said previously, that this has led civil society and, and a number of governments to take another route, another stand. And now, of course, they are being accused by the nuclear weapon states of you know, creating divisions, uh, undermining the NPT, uh, not leading to actual disarmament because the treaty is rejected by the nuclear armed states. But it will nevertheless create a new norm of illegality, of illegitimacy of, of nuclear weapons. Right, great. So we have seen what the actual problem ha has been. Back to the full screen view, great. So now we're going back to the discussion that we had in the beginning regarding United States, Russia, and the other powers. So let's go to the New START agreement. As our viewers know, it's the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. Mr. Finland, the expiry of the new Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty is expected in 2021. What is, what is going to be the impact of this expiry and what was the supposed role of this new treaty in regards to strategic relations on nuclear deterrence between the United States and Russia? Yes, I mean, this treaty is, is a step in a um, series of uh, instruments, agreements, between first the US and the Soviet Union and then Russia 
you know, these treaties are cannot be called disarmament treaties. They are arms control treaties. They are because the main purpose is to introduce uh, ceilings uh, in the in numbers of nuclear weapons, and actually. Um, until now, until recently, the focus was not so much on the nuclear warheads themselves, but on the means of delivery, the number of bombers or missiles to deliver uh, nuclear weapons. The main purpose was to establish some sort of parity or equality between the, the two main uh, nuclear powers, because they uh, both of them own more than 90% of the world's uh, arsenal. And uh, gradually, of course, to reduce these ceilings and and therefore the, the number of uh, nuclear weapons, but in such a way as no one would gain advantage. That was the purpose. But at, this, at the same time, in, in parallel, there was still some form of arms race going on. And if you look at the history of nuclear deterrence or nuclear um, weapons buildup, the trend has always been uh, to, or, uh, to find some balance between defensive weapons and offensive weapons. Now, again, historically, because uh, the, the two main powers looked for some form of what they called strategic stability, they had agreed during the Cold War uh, to limit the this, um, defensive systems, anti-ballistic missile defense systems uh, in a treaty called the ABM Treaty. And so that means that they limit, limited the number of sites and, and systems that could in, in, uh, um, create some, some challenge, some obstacles to offensive weapons. In, that, in other words, nuclear deterrence is based not only on the fear of the use of the weapons, but on the maintenance of a retaliation or response capability. So this balance of terror, if you like, re uh, uh, requires that each side allows the other side to respond to a first strike. And if both sides agree, then it, chances are that uh, nuclear weapon, I mean, first strike will not take place because of the risk of massive retaliation from the other side. Now, if you start building up defenses, obviously you create obstacle to this second strike uh, response. And this is what the US did uh, under uh, Bush in 2002, the US withdrew from the ABM treaty and that was seen as a major blow to strategic stability by Russia. So what did Russia do? Well, they said, okay, US, you are building these defenses, not only uh, on your territory, but actually extended to NATO, which is close to our borders. And uh, these systems, which you call defensive, can also be used as 
offensive missiles, and they could be used to facilitate a first strike against us. So in order to offset this threat, Russia started to invest in new categories of weapons, such as hypersonic missiles or gliders that are faster than ballistic missiles, but more, uh, moreover, they are more maneuverable and they can, it's, they're uh, more accurate, they can reach their targets more precisely. And therefore they can evade defenses. So Russia invested massively in, in, in this policy and actually all other states did. Uh, Russia and India together are working on also on uh, hypersonic missiles. Russia also developed a, um, a, a submarine or underwater drone, a nuclear armed torpedo, um, uh, which again, is very difficult to, to intercept and, and to stop. Also, there was a massive investment in cruise missiles by all nuclear powers, because cruise missiles, again, are easier to, ma to maneuver than ballistic missiles. So they're, 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 they can be more accurate. And, um, and in this trend, you also have what the US did, uh, again, in response to Russians' uh, responses, they also had their own responses. For instance, uh, Trump in his nuclear posture review decided to introduce a new category of uh, nuclear weapon, so-called low yield, which is slightly uh, less powerful than the Hiroshima bomb um, to equip cruise missiles or, uh, or submarines. And, uh, you know, this is presented as, as just to, a way to bridge the gap or the, um, uh, the lack of capabilities vis-a-vis -vis the new Russian uh, weapons. But in fact, this lowers the threshold of use because it's, it's more attractive to, to use a low yield weapon because you, you, you say, well, it will not maybe destroy cities. It will destroy maybe uh, half a city. So this whole trend, you know, all these um, actions, reactions uh, on defensive weapons, offensive weapons, and, you know, have created this situation where even the, the START Treaty, which is only 10 years old, is now completely obsolete. And so it, it made sense on the part of the US to say, okay, we, we need a new treaty to cover all these new trends. And uh, Russia was, uh, in a sense, willing to do this, the first step, which is just to extend the treaty as it is, but start negotiating on these new issues. But the Russians, they want to put everything on the table, the defensive systems, even the, the some conventional systems which the US have developed, which called uh, prompt global strike, which are long distance precision guided weapons that uh, Russia feels could be used to decapitate uh, its retaliation capability and therefore 
could be an incentive for a first strike. So all these uh, if developments create a major or much higher risk of use of nuclear weapons or escalation to nuclear war. And therefore, there is a need now, this urgent need uh, first to uh, extend the treaty, the START treaty, and start negotiating uh, a new, new measures to cover all these other developments. Great. I'm being told by the technical team that my camera has some problems, so I'm going to shut it off for the rest of the interview. So our next question is exactly regarding what we're discussing before, regarding chemical weapons, bioweaponry. All right, so is there all of other kinds of weapons, such as bioweaponry, chemical weaponry, and the rest more significant at and the rest more significant at the micro level as compared to the monolith of nuclear deterrence, for example, in Central Asia or ASEAN or Africa, maybe? Well, as I said previously, both chemical weapons and biological weapons have, have been prohibited. Uh, their use was already prohibited by international humanitarian law reaffirmed in the 1925 Geneva Protocol because they are considered as abhorrent weapons which can um, target civilians um, and, and violate international humanitarian law. Now we have seen, I mean, actually these two categories are, are not absolutely similar because if you look at the uh, biological weapons, and this is quite relevant in, in times of pandemics, you realize that no country uh, claims to possess biological weapons. There are, of course, the large majority of states have signed and ratified, so they apply the prohibition in the, in the Biological Weapons Convention, but those that remain outside a few countries in the Middle East, uh, North Korea, none of them actually claim to or brag about these weapons because they're considered as uh, so abhorrent, so inhumane that they're not weapons of uh, something, I mean, that you, you claim or you're proud to have. Chemical weapons, again, have been largely banned and eliminated. 98% of declared stockpiles have been destroyed. Now, U.S. is still lagging behind, but it's, uh, you know, um, its huge stockpiles that it had is is completely neutralized, cannot be used, uh, and it's in a process of uh, final in elimination. Now, uh, but we have seen in the Middle East a resurgence, a, a, a reappearance of use of chemical weapons, mostly in civil wars, especially in Syria and to some extent in Iraq. Uh, the problem, of course, as we know, uh, was to uh, investigate whether these weapons have been used, those weapons which are prohibited, and to attribute responsibility. And uh, this was a challenge for the international community because it, the convention initially was adapted mostly to state actors, state use, not so much 
to terrorists uh, or non-state actors. And in the case of Syria, it was found that both state actors and non-state actors have used nuclear, uh, sorry, chemical weapons, mostly against civilians, and therefore they uh, these cases could could be called war crimes, and uh, anyway violations of uh, international law. So now the challenge is to ensure that these uh, weapons will, will not be used anymore. Uh, as you know, some toxic chemicals uh, which are available um, in, in, for civilian uses, such as chlorine, for instance, have been used as weapons to, to kill people. Uh, some specific uh, chemical weapons such as nerve agents have been used in cases of uh, political assassination as we have seen uh, from uh, Russia in, in the UK and against its own opponents. Uh, so these are new challenges, new cases, and the international community is uh, confronted with this. It had already some some decisions were made. Uh, the inspection system of the organization verifying the, the chemical weapons convention has been improved. Uh, these new uh, agents called Novichok, which it's a family of uh, toxic chemicals, have been included in the in the prohibited uh, chemicals. And this was made possible precisely because at, uh, in contrast, in opposition with the non-proliferation treaty, the big powers don't have any special rights or special privileges. This, you know, this was lessons learned from the NPT. Uh, if you take the other treaties, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty, again, there's no special privilege for nuclear weapon states. Uh, the, the rights and obligations are the same for all. So it's the same in the Chemical Weapons Convention, and that's why there could be uh, a majority vote uh, to, to adopt these uh, new rules, despite the opposition of Russia and some other countries. So I think this, it's a good lesson learned. It's a good model, a good example that could be followed. Actually, in the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, again, there is no special right or special obligation for nuclear weapon states. Uh, they have uh, an, an two options, actually, to join and uh, present a disarmament plan that will you know, uh, be consulted with the, the other member states, or to disarm and join as non-nuclear weapon states. So, no special privileges, and I think this again is is a good lesson, a good model to follow. So our next question was exactly on the relevance of state actors in affirming their commitments. Mr. Finod has already shown us the importance and has already shown us that not only state actors were involved in using those specific weapons. So we'll go further on to the Quad Treaty, the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue. Mr. Finod, in 
India, Japan, the US, and Australia are currently interested in um, some sort of maritime and military cooperation for the quadrilateral security dialogue. They have started working on it. How can this sh shape the Indo-Pacific perspective on nuclear deterrence? Again, if you look at previous cases uh, of alliances, military alliances or broader alliances, such as NATO and the Warsaw Pact during the Cold War, there were opposing alliances, um, more or less based on zero-sub game. You know, each side considered that uh, its security was relied on the insecurity of the other side. Um, and therefore, even if there was some competition or some agreement on strategic stability, as we have seen between the US and the Soviet Union, um, they were still based on confrontation. So still a risk of conflict or escalation. So at the end of the Cold War, actually, actually during the Cold War itself, there was this attempt to overcome this division of alliances by creating a joint organization. So it initially it was a conference, a conference on security and cooperation in Europe. And then it became an organization after the end of the Cold War, the organization for security and cooperation in Europe. So instead of opposing groups and alliances and blocs, it seeks to find common ground, common uh, interests, and, and 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 reduce, of course, tensions. Now, it's it's not a, a total success because we we can see now that tensions, especially with Russia uh, after the the war in in Georgia and now the war in Ukraine, um, you know. It, it's not enough to have an organization. Uh, you cannot necessarily stop the big powers if they have very aggressive policies, but it's still important to keep the channels of com com communication open and to seek confidence building measures, uh, transparency to, again, to facilitate a, a return to uh, normal, I would say, coexistence. In the, in the Pacific, of course, then uh, there is a, 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 a new approach by a number of states which share, which have, which have in common the fear of China. And this, this fear, of course, can be justified to some extent, but can also be, it, you know, it's a threat perception that sometimes can be uh, exaggerated or, again, there can be some differences between perception and reality. So that's why it's, it, it, it's, of course, it's never bad for countries to cooperate in all sphere, all spheres, including security and defense. But if it's done only against another country or another group of countries, maybe it's not the best solution. Uh, so could, again, if you take the lessons from Europe, from the Cold War in Europe, maybe it can be a starting point, but then the next point should be to engage and to find common solutions with China and, and other states which are perceived as aggressive in the region. Uh, look at the, the again, the, 
the problem with North Korea. Uh, all the attempts that included, uh, um, oh, let's say, multilateral aspects, a uh, number of states, including uh, you know the six-party talks, they succeeded to some extent. Uh, and whenever there was a return to unilateralism or bilateralism, it failed. This, this is what we are witnessing today with the, the US uh, policy. So again, lessons learned, multilateralism is almost always better than unilateralism or bilateralism. Great. Here's a bit of a joke. Mr. Finod, always when we ask him a question, he manages to answer the next questions we have. <laughs> so we'll go on and try to detail these aspects more. So Mr. Finod, you, ha you, ha you have been talking about the lessons that Quad has to learn. What should the Quad effectively do to avoid the mistakes that the European Union, NATO, NATO had in handling nuclear deterrence? and in order to avoid, of course, the Cold War mentality. Yes, I think first, you know, the first lesson is the one that um, we discussed earlier regarding nuclear proliferation or nuclear deterrence. You cannot at the same time uh, claim that nuclear weapons are the best way to protect your security and deny other countries the, the same right. Uh, so it's it's a sort of dilemma. If you want to have nuclear weapons for yourself, then you can't really prevent others from having them, which of course then can create a ma major risk. If you if you only have these double standards, I want I want to keep my own weapons and I want to prevent others from uh, getting their hands on them. Then of course it creates a lot of frustration and and and, um, and again it's it, it's a recipe for failure. Now in the case of Asia, of course, there are, um, it's difficult to compare with the you know the block system during the Cold War in, in Europe. You have because you have a, a multipolar system with uh, big countries, big actors like China, uh, India, and the US is also part of the region, if if not geographically, at least militarily. It has a, a network of alliances uh, with key countries, um, providing extended nuclear, nuclear deterrence to Japan, South Korea, Australia. So again, it's it's a very complex system. And, and, and if you only, take one approach which which would be to try to isolate to to contain china as the us had tried to do with the soviet union as we know uh, you know it only has limited results and it can only fuel confrontation uh, conflict so again it's better to have a win-win situation um, let's the whole world recognized that China and India are important global actors, regional actors. They all have their own interests, and they can these interests can be balanced, can be um, made mutually beneficial, rather than 
based on zero-sum game or confrontation. So again, uh, if you know, uh, I had modest advice to give would be prepare, cooperate among yourselves, but also engage and and try to find common interests with China. Uh, you know, promote the multilateral solution of the North Korean uh, crisis, uh, because again, I mean, you can you can engage with all the, the, the existing groups, um, uh, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the, uh, of course, ASEAN, uh, etc., because they all represent uh, regional interests, but they can find, they can identify also global interests that have, would help them find common solutions. Great. So the overall message is one of peace. But let's go back to a more conflictual area, if we are to say. We are going back to North Korea. You have mentioned it before. How can the Japanese build a relationship with China in order to transform and work together towards denuclearizing North Korea? <clears throat> Well, as I said, the, the best solution, uh, in, in my view, is, is a multilateral solution. With all the regional actors involved, of course, US, Russia, China, South Korea, but also Japan. Because of history, uh, we know that uh, you know conflicts uh, are still very much present in people's minds. You see uh, regularly tensions between Japan and South Korea or Japan and China. So this has to be um, overcome. And there are a number of steps, you know, confidence building measures, uh, uh, symbolic measures such as uh, mutual excuses or, or forgiveness, uh, reconciliation, uh, you know, all, all these these are ways which have proven to be effective in other conflicts to precisely create uh, the, the pave the way for uh, for lasting peace now in the case of north korea we know that uh, there is still a state of war going on between the us north korea and china uh, and despite the the recent developments and summits, this is still, I would say, the low, lowest um, hanging fruit because it's been a constant demand from North Korea as one of the conditions to accept to give up its nuclear weapons, to have some guarantees that it will not be uh, again attacked or under military pressure from the United States mostly, but it keep, you know of course it keeps Japan also uh, potentially as as as, a, as an enemy as it was the, during the Second World War. So again, uh, it's necessary to have a bilateral agreement between the U.S. and, and North Korea, but it's not sufficient. You, we need the involvement of the other regional countries, and 
uh, a number of agreements, starting with a peace agreement, security guarantees, lifting of sanctions, which will facilitate uh, the eventual denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula. Um, again, I don't want to, to brag about any achievements uh, I took part in, but um, I worked with the, the former president and foreign minister of Switzerland, Micheline Calmiret, who was in, in uh, office when, the, when Switzerland tried to mediate between North Korea and the United States. And now she teaches at the University of Geneva and she has a seminar on uh, multilateral negotiations. So we did a simulation of an agreement within the six-party talks uh, with students uh, from Switzerland and from Moscow. And we achieved this uh, result. Precisely, it was because there was a, a, a strong desire to to come to an agreement, but also because the instruments that were used made this possible. The, this idea of a multilateral agreement with more actors, therefore there can be more give and take, more mutual concessions, and a time uh, timeline, a time frame for making steps uh, on the on the part of one country or uh, the other, and expecting steps in response or, or making those steps uh, mutually conditional. So again, the instruments are available and they should be applied uh, until now, of course, the, unfortunately the US policy was more about personal uh, ego of the US president's uh, photo op, but no serious negotiation because it was clear that serious negotiations would entail all these measures that I mentioned, including lifting of sanctions. Okay, thank you, Mr. Finan. So as it appears, this has been our last question. To conclude, a personal opinion over here. Until now, nuclear policy has been exactly like in order to cite Mr. Roosevelt, it's nice to speak uh, soft words, but it's nicer to speak soft words and carry a big stick. Let's hope that in the future, the soft words, as in the sense of multilateral agreements, might actually make the big stick redundant. Thank you, Mr. Finand. I'm Jon Tudor Gheorghe. I've been today's presenter. And we'll see you next time. Have a nice day. Thank you so much for the invitation. We thank you, Mr. Finand. And thank you for all your support until now.